expedition behavior is about that everyone's going to have a good day and everyone's going to have a bad day. And ultimately, our goal is to get us from here to there in a way that supports everyone. I think translating that more into a corporate environment is that if you are here, you have a seat at the table. So that means that you should feel an ability to go and ask, why are we doing stuff this way? Finding the better ways that we can always be doing stuff and challenging ourselves to always be doing better. What's up, everyone, and welcome to the Breakline Arena. We are so grateful that you are here. The Breakline Arena is a space that welcomes changemakers, hustlers, and leaders in the tech industry to share their journeys and passions and insights. We are hosted by Breakline Education, which serves to help top performers from underselected backgrounds land new and exciting roles in the tech industry. If you're a person of color or a veteran or a woman, there's info in the show notes about how to join our community. Now let's dive into the arena for today's special guest. Good afternoon, Breakline community. This is Zane Kanab, head of customer success at Breakline. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of the arena. Ethan, I'm so fired up to have this conversation with you. Listeners, for those of you that don't know, Ethan is the co-founder and CEO of Dispel, a cybersecurity company and market leader in moving target defense technology. Welcome. It's my pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. And I got to tell you, Ethan, we have over 150 partner companies, but your team's culture, products, and approach to hiring and retaining talent stand out. Over the last five months of partnering, we're incredibly proud that you've added six breakliners from our Maven, Apex, and veteran communities to your product and sales teams. And we know how precious your time is. So let me just start by sincerely thanking you for your partnership and for joining us today. There have been terrific contributions to the team. As we've scaled it, it's really good to get people that mesh with the culture that we have at the company. It's really important. It contributes directly to how we've been able to double the company's size year over year and still not lose, I think, the, the feeling of openness and trust that we've been able to grow since the very, very beginning. It's incredible. It's incredible to hear some of the first words out of your mouth are about the culture and scaling with sustainability and, and the importance of people at the center of that. And so it's wonderful to hear that. And I know that it's going to resonate with our audience, especially. Could we start out, Ethan, just by kind of an open-ended question, start by telling us a little bit about yourself and walking us through your career to date? Sure. So now I've been at Dispel for the last nine years. So it now makes up a substantial part of my career. Before I founded Dispel, I was a full-stack engineer at another tech startup in New York. And then before that, I was focused more on the venture capital side on C4ISR technologies. So these are a body of different kinds of command control, communications, intelligence, surveillance, reconnaissance technology, which is heavily used in the US military and intelligence community. So that was my focus before that. I was noticing your academic background is not computer science. How did you go from... I think it was international studies and Japanese at Middlebury into full stack development. How did that pivot happen? Yeah. So it was, uh, yeah, it was psychology, European history, and Japanese makes for an interesting combination. I also had a fair amount of political science background uh, in Southeast Asia, uh, terrific experience with a lot of folks from the State Department over there. And 
the way I got there was I was at Stanford Graduate School of Business for a pre-MBA program. And I talked my way for the rest of the summer, I talked my way into working for a terrific venture capital firm in Silicon Valley called True Ventures. And they were focused on really, really the earliest stage of companies. So when it's just really the quintessential two people in a garage, and you'd go and have coffees with people who stayed up all night coding a prototype, and then you'd have companies come and by companies, you had people come to Silicon Valley and pitch their original idea. And it would be the first of the week of all the meetings they'd scheduled. And you get five minutes and you realize, okay, hang on, this deck is a disaster. Let's just sit down and help you restructure this all because we want you guys to leave California with funding. So let's set you guys up for success. And it was terrific. I really enjoyed the culture, the passion, the sort of problems that people were tackling across a wide variety of different industries and, and different challenges in the market. And I thought that would be really wonderful to go into. And so after I left Middlebury, that's when I still enjoyed a lot of the political science, government side of things, which is the reason why I gravitated towards C4ISR and those sorts of technologies. But I realized it would actually be more fun to be in the trenches as opposed to just looking at it from 20 miles away. And so I decided I should go get my engineering hat and go work for a tech startup. And while we were there, some of the folks I connected with earlier had been thinking about ways they could capitalize on some of the technologies that they were developing or ideating. And they said, well, why don't we build a commercial side of this and build a front-end interface on it and, and do a lot of the coding? So I actually built one of the first versions for part of the front-end interface, uh, not the back-end, but a component of, of our code. I think everyone will be happy to know that all of that code has been deprecated and it has probably been deprecated <laughs> for at least eight years now, but it was a really fun original part of the company. Yeah, what an incredible path. So much of the Breakline community have made pivots within their function or within their career from industry to industry. And our fundamental hypothesis is that excellence is transferable. And so hearing that pivot so early for you, but also that common thread that took you from milestone to milestone, and now nine years with Dispel is, is incredible. So thank you for sharing that. Can you give us an overview of Dispel and its core product? And I'll put a, a plug in as well. I know you guys recently launched your own podcast, Moving Targets, and there's a couple that have dropped thus far on your website, and they're an incredible overview. So I wanted to put that plug in for, for listeners that are wanting to learn more. But in your own words, could you give us an overview of Dispel and its core product? Yeah, and, and thank you. Caroline is the host of Moving Targets, is one of our, our engineers. And so she both builds the technology and she's also got a terrific repertoire. And, and I was thrilled when she and Adam said that they wanted to do a podcast and it's really turned out wonderfully. So what Dispel focuses on is really enabling secure access to industrial control systems. And all the components around that. So how do we allow data of any kind, whether it's a human interacting with the device or us pulling data out of one of these systems, how do you allow an internet connection to a industrial control system? And at the heart of what it, there are a number of different security control criteria that govern or should govern access to these systems that need to be established. The automated maintenance and operations of these systems need to be sensitive and tied together. But a lot of what we're dealing with is figuring out how do you communicate with critical infrastructure in a highly contested environment, which is the internet. And at the heart of what we built, which is the moving target defense component, is a network backbone that allows you to be able to connect to systems on the internet 
without exposing the fact that the target we're connecting to is in fact associated with an industrial control system. It just looks like someone sitting at home watching Netflix. Man, it is absolutely fascinating to think. And I know when I was reading about the Dispel products, it seems like, I think in another interview you mentioned, Ethan, that the idea of moving target defense may have gotten its origins in like the US Navy trying to protect systems and commercializing it. And when you mention industrial control systems, I know I had to really internalize that when you're saying that, what you're really talking about are some of the most sensitive infrastructure or manufacturing systems that rely on uptime and zero vulnerabilities. So like water systems, manufacturing, and the like, correct? When you, when we talk about commercializing that technology. No, that's absolutely right. It's also the reason why I think people like working at Dispel is there's a lot of tech companies people can go and work for, and there are a lot of different challenges people can go and tackle. I think what people get a kick out of is when they go home for Thanksgiving and people say, but what do you do? They get to point to pretty much everything in a, a CVS or in a grocery store or when they turn on the tap and say, well, we make that or we make that happen. And the sheer quantity of, of products and services and utilities that we protect, I think it's really fun that they get to tell their families and show their, their loved ones that this is like this very tangible thing that they get to work on. I love that. How do you describe what sets Dispel apart from other companies in the cyberspace or cybersecurity ecosystem? Mm -hmm. So in the world of what's called zero trust access to industrial control systems, so if you were to put in G2, the category you're looking for, access to it, remote access for industrial control systems or operational technology. There are a number of products that are on the market and they kind of live on a spectrum of capabilities. And when you're, you as a buyer are approaching it, the question that you should ask yourself is, how many facilities do I have? How complicated uh, is it to connect into these environments? How many people are connecting in? And then what are the security control criteria I need to be meeting or should I be meeting? And as you go up in scale and complexity and regulatory environment and requirements you have built out against yourself, that will lead you up from some technologies up into others. And so when we think about what is it that distinguishes a product from another product, first, there are a lot of good products on the market. The question is, or a better question is, where do you sit on what your control criteria are? Nice. Dispel lives, I would say, at the uppermost set of requirements. So if you operate in very sensitive systems, if you are a large multinational company, if you have to absolutely meet the NIST CSF or 882 or IEC 62443, right? If you, that's where you're living, that's when you're going to turn to Dispel. The other component to it and the big differentiator is, is it a tool that you buy? So is it an error you put in your quiver or is it a managed service? In other words, do you have to dedicate your IT teams, your OT security teams time to feeding and watering and maintaining this? Or is this something that you're going to outsource to someone that as a managed service? And when you want to implement the eight different categories of technologies you need in order to put in secure remote access, that typically takes six to eight full-time employees to be able to do. And that's expensive, right? You guys know better than anyone else. The average cost of a system security analyst is about $90,000 roughly, right? So fully wrapped, you're looking at three quarters to a million dollars every single year, just in FTE, plus the eight technologies you then have to buy on top of that. That's really expensive. It is a lot cheaper to just go and buy it from Dispel. The economies of scale are significantly higher. This is where we live and breathe. 
we pen test the heck out our stuff. We, we check it all the time. This is what we do. So when we think about, to answer your question, where do we live? What differentiates it? It's a managed service that allows you to have access to these environments. And by brokering it through our environment, you're going to know that you're meeting the control criteria for your industry. Love it. Thank you for going deep into that to explain it, because I know it's really important. Switching gears a little bit, though, Ethan, I have a 10-year-old son who's an animal fanatic, just like he's going to be a naturalist. And out of all our partner companies, I think your logo, the owl, is his favorite. And I was able to tell him in prepping for this podcast that the owl has a name, Emily. Yes. It's a beautiful owl. Could you tell us the story behind Emily the owl? Yeah. So Emily the owl, Emily is a real barn owl. Uh, She lives in Scotland and she was a rescue. So she had, uh, at a very, very young age, had injured, I believe, her wing. And so she couldn't fly. And so she was at a sanctuary that was taking care of her and they were trying to get her prepared to be released in the wild. And Emily realized that it was actually pretty nice not being in the cold rain of Scotland and she could just eat and she was going to get fed mice no matter what. Mm-hmm. So Emily was a uh, was, was no dummy. And so I got to meet Emily at the recovery center there and got to know her and work with her. She was terrific. And we were thinking about what we wanted as a symbol for our company. First, the personality of Emily was just warm and kind, but also they're silent. And a lot of what we were doing is building networks that were silent, that were hidden, that were hard to detect. And I think owls really personified that more than any of the other things that we could come up with. I love it. I love that you you even started with the personality is warm and kind, which kind of leads me into my next question, because we've had a lot of brake liners that have had the opportunity to interview with you and your team over the last five months. And one of the things that I noticed and I love to hear is when our brake liners rave about the feel of the culture that they're interviewing with. And that's been a consistent theme for our communities that have interviewed with you. Could you give the listeners a sense for how you would describe the culture and the things that I was even going through the notes from some of the interviewers that have talked about quotes like, this company values diversity and things like employee empowerment, those stick out. So could you describe that culture? Sure. I think if there were a thing that you could define it against, it would be good expedition behavior, which is a concept that comes out of an outdoor school called Knowles, which I would strongly recommend everyone go take a Knowles course. And I'm very biased to taking a number of them. But expedition behavior is foundational as an idea of how do we get to the summit of a mountain or how do we, we get to accomplish a goal, understanding that if that's the goal, there are meaningful and challenging group dynamics, especially if you're in a, in a challenging environment. And so how do you get from here to there? And I think that sprinkles down into a number of different activity areas. So expedition behavior is about that everyone's going to have a good day and everyone's going to have a bad day. And ultimately, our goal is to get us from here to there in a way that supports everyone. I think translating that more into a corporate environment is that if you are here, you have a seat at the table. So that means that you should feel ability to go and ask, why are we doing stuff this way? Finding the better ways that we can always be doing stuff and challenging ourselves to always be doing better. Figuring out not having pride of authorship over what it is that we're developing, but simply understanding, but still understanding why we made the decisions that we made at that time for engineering something. And then figuring out, well, are there better ways or is that actually a thoughtful way of doing it? I think we've got a relatively flat hierarchy. I actually think that some people are pushing us to have more structure now as we've doubled the company size yet again. But a lot of it is I think accessibility as well. People should feel welcome to to call folks, ask questions. 
And then also find ways that we can create career trajectories for folks so that they can start where they are. But we hire people because we think that they've got great potential, not necessarily because of the technical skills that they have just coming in. And so it's how do we make sure that people who are really, really talented engineers can continue to be talented engineers, those that think that they are really wonderful managers? How do we create opportunities for them to really cheer and accomplish their goals with their teams and with the teams that work with them? So it's a longer, more complicated, more nuanced discussion. But I think that at the highest level, I think we're driven in large part by that expedition behavior and then all the subsets from that. I love that. I'm going to have to take a look at good expedition behavior. It reminds me of Ernest Shackleton and, and the story of endurance. And I'm sure it's it's woven in there at some point, but that's fascinating. Thank you for sharing that and what's at the core of that culture. It's very obvious. Very obvious that when our candidates are interviewing or are now a part of your team, that they're seeing the manifestation of that culture in the in that behavior that they see. So all right, this next question. <laughs> I have two brothers, Ethan, both older. I cannot imagine working with them, let alone starting a company with one of them. And Mm -hmm. I know that your brother, Ian, is the president and CFO at Dispel. Could you talk a little bit about what it's like to have that family business and some of the leadership challenges that come with it? Yeah, well, I'd say Ian is is very much the co-CEO, but on forms, you have to put a different title for something. (laughs) So Ian and I have worked together for obviously a number of years and it's terrific. The great thing about it is that he and I both have very strong passions and and wonderful excellence in different areas. So the strengths that make Ian really good at at the areas that he focuses on, the strengths that make me really good at the areas I focus on, that division I think is really, really helpful because they complement one another. And I think the same thing is true for the two of us, but then also our COO, Ben Burke, and our CTO, Crystal Lorenzo. Each person brings that kind of familial passion to this. And we've been doing this for so long that that's just part of how it, it works. The four of us all started in my apartment in New York. We actually you know, we burned out two coffee machines starting the company at the very beginning. And that's all just been part of it. Working with Ian is a real pleasure. You always have something to talk about on family vacations, no matter what. <laughs> you stay very connected and grounded with your family. So all of those things are a lot of fun. Yeah. I was going to say, how much does it bleed over? Is there some boundary setting that has had to happen at various no. times or are there rules it of engagement? Nope. Bleeds over all, all the time, all the time. I think the thing that helps is that his wife and my fiance sometimes sort of look at us at the mm. red dinner. Not yeah. Yet. Yep. They crack the whip. That's That's awesome. And speaking of your brother, I was able to do a little bit of digging and ask about some stories that I should try to elicit during this conversation. And so I have a few that I'll just tee you up with so that we could maybe share. And the first one is about, I don't even understand this one. Ethan, can you tell the story about driving the moose from Phoenix to Austin? Yes, I should (laughs) emphasize this was not a live moose. The moose was and is, it was our first really, really big conference booth. Mm. And for reasons I don't understand, this was packed in casings that actually look like the casings for anti-air missile containers. And I don't know how the supplier, I just, okay, so that that shows up and it weighs several hundred pounds. Each one of these containers weighs several hundred pounds. And the cargo terminal in Phoenix decided that they could not airlift them for us and that we would need to drive them in order to get them to a conference in Austin, Texas quickly enough. Now, 
as moments of, of siblings making decisions about conferences, it may have not been the best judgment that we had booked Arizona and then Texas right back to back. Mm-hmm. But in any event, the answer was, we'll just drive it. Ian rented a pickup truck. I believe it was a Raptor. And we loaded that thing up with these things and we drove nonstop from Phoenix to Texas and were stopped very briefly by border protection at a checkpoint who took one look at a truck, but more importantly, at these cases in the back Mm -hmm. and did the exact opposite of what I expected, which was, could we see what is in those? And they thought, yeah, that seems reasonable. And they (laughs) waved us through it. But all right, that is what it is. Yeah. But that was getting the moose to Austin. The moose is still in service. It has been supplanted by larger, even heavier models, but Mm -hmm. uh, it is still serving out its life. And the moose is the nickname for the booth. Yes. <laughs> I love it. And no, I don't know where that, it was It was anointed in a conversation I wasn't part of, probably by someone swearing about the thing being as heavy as a moose. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I love it. And then this next one, Nerf gun debate resolution techniques. Yes. So as I mentioned, the four of us, are, uh, CT, so Ben, Chris, myself, and Ian were, uh, started the, the company out of my apartment for the first couple of years. And Ben decided that the way to deal with how to make decisions, if we were stuck on usually an engineering decision in the very early days, mm-hmm. was that Ben bought us Nerf guns, specifically about Ian and me Nerf guns. And there's a not a real Picatinny rail, but there's kind of a rail on top of these, which obviously for reasons... I decided I should mount a optic onto mine. And it turns out that in the close confines of a New York City apartment, we're not talking about a lot of square footage here, mm-hmm. it actually can make a huge difference because <laughs> it's it's such a sh- close area. If you actually put a red dot optic onto a Nerf gun and you're not shooting more than 10 feet, it actually gives you better accuracy. And this is a critical component for making decisions because I was able to definitely land more hits on on Ian than he was on me. That's a good story and good recommendation as well. I'll have to pass that along to my boys for their Nerf Mm -hmm. companies. All right. How about this next one? This is the last one, and then we'll move on to more serious questions. But TechCrunch Disrupt 2016. Ring any bell? Yeah. So one thing I like to tell folks who, especially when I get calls from a volunteer with my high school and I sometimes talk with kids who are saying, all right, well, I want to, you know, what's it like to be in the tech world or they're going into working for tech startups in Silicon Valley. And I recommend that they actually watch the HBO show Silicon Valley because (laughs) I don't think any of it was made up. I think they just, all they had to do was just sit and watch. And so the illusion to TechCrunch disrupt is because there's an episode where they're at TechCrunch. And we, when Dispel sort of did our debut, it was at TechCrunch Disrupt in New York City. And it's all true. It's all entirely accurate. Everything about it, both Dispel, all the other companies that were there, it's a complete event. And I almost want to go back now as a much more established, mature company, just Mm -hmm. to see what it would be like. It was in terms of what we didn't know, but the bombacity of all of it, I think was terrific. Or infamous, either way. Yeah. I'll just point out that TechCrunch has never invited us to come back. I'll just put that <laughs> out there for the internet. Well, I hope you get an invite back so you can have that perspective. But that was actually when I was departing the military and wanting to get into the tech industry, that was one of the best pieces of advice that I got was to watch Silicon Valley because a lot of it is true. And it is it, it is really happening. is. Okay. 
So back to the serious question for listeners that are considering dispel for their next career. Could you share what you're looking for in new teammates? Yeah. I think the first one is, so the thing that matters to us in Veritex is you're hiring a person. You're not just hiring someone who can just do one specific task. And so, yes, I want to make sure that you've got really good technical chops and that you know what you're talking about and, and that you're you're comfortable in that, but also that you're actually in, you're an interesting, good person, that you have a diversity of interests, that you have a life outside of your life that you'd have it dispel. The number of rock climbers that we have, obviously, we have a number of people at our, our company who are all rock climbers, and I'm convinced that they hire people because they're rock climbers. So those who interview, make sure you know how to boulder. So no, seriously, so that makes a lot of difference because this is a marathon, not a sprint. And so people have to be able to have things that allow them to decompress outside of work because Dispel is also a fairly, I'd say, fast-paced, aggressive institution. We are competing against a lot of other companies. I have a great deal of respect for them, and which means that we try even harder all the time in the market, and that takes a lot. And so I also think that people who understand how to work with teams who don't let their ego get ahead of them, I think is really, really important, want to learn and master their material. We succeed as a company because we get really in the technical weeds on on the market that we serve. And so the people that succeed are the ones that when they arrive or before they even start, they hit the books, right? And they start reading about industrial control system, cybersecurity, what are the standards, getting to know them, learning them chapter and verse, because it sets them up for success. Because if they don't understand that stuff at a fundamental level, how can they possibly build the technology that supports customers that live inside of those environments? And if you haven't worked in an oil rig or you haven't worked in, in manufacturing, that's going to be a completely alien environment. And so really saying, I might be a, the best database engineer in the world, I've got to know how that applies to these people. I think really, really makes a difference. And then the last thing I'd say is be nice. We have a rule at Dispel, which is, or a check at Dispel, which is that if you wouldn't leave your kid with someone for 30 minutes, just to run a quick errand, like, hey, can I just leave, can I leave my kid with you for, you know, I just want to do this thing. You're like, I don't know. I don't know. I don't get the right, I don't get a, a good vibe from them. That matters. I think in, in the experience we've had hiring folks, trusting that instinct and trusting the instinct of other people saying that really, really matters. Yeah. And one of the first pieces you mentioned on having that whole person concept and thinking about, all right, are they going to be able to make this sustainable is kind of how I would reinterpret that. But it, it speaks to that expedition behavior. And our CEO, Bethany, has said multiple times on the podcast, her approach is not work-life balance. She actually doesn't necessarily like that term. She thinks about it as like work-life sustainability because it is a marathon. So love those points. And thank you for sharing all those. How about, and I only have a couple questions left, but as you wrap up, could you share more about the short-term vision and long-term vision for the company? Yeah. So our short-term vision for Dispel is to complete out building all the feature sets around some of these security control criteria. That's okay. a very like specific thing to say, but mm -hmm. the things that I sit down on are making sure that we can delight our customers. And the way we delight them is that it just works and it's just everything they wanted it to be. And they should be able to walk in and say, that's terrific. That's great. It just does exactly, it solves my problem. Thank God you guys are here. And we're very, very close to, I think, being done with that phase of our development cycle. And it's taken eight years to do and millions of dollars to do or tens of millions of dollars to do. But I think we're very, very close to that. The next step and the longer term vision for us is I would like to spell to be 
the gold standard and the backbone for all access to industrial control systems for every provider out there. It shouldn't just be, how do I remotely do maintenance or, or control? It's any company that's touching an industrial control system should be using Dispel as the backbone to securely connect to that environment because it doesn't matter if it's a human or a machine connecting, right? Those are bits and bytes going over the wire that should always be governed in a standardized way that meets the security control criteria. And so making an offering and building an offering that allows us to become essentially the infrastructure for the infrastructure is what we should be aiming for. I love that. Thank you. All right, Ethan, we covered a ton of ground. This has been so much fun. Any parting reflections or words of advice for our audience before we close it out? One, I think Breaklines delivers some terrific candidates to us. So I genuinely do feel that way. And I think that when people are looking for to break into the tech sector or to look to transition from being in the services, for example, I go back to, again, the thing that we're looking for at Dispel, and I think people are looking for elsewhere. They're not just hiring for a specific skill set. And if you box yourself into that thinking, I have to demonstrate that I am really, really good at this one particular thing, and I'll clear everything else off my CV because that's not what this one thing they're hiring for. I think that that's probably a mistake because people are hiring people. And ultimately, it's someone that they think they can get along with and that will be reliable and, and a wonderful colleague and they can grow it and they can trust. And showing that you're a bassoonist or that you are a terrific chef or that you like to go rock climbing or are an expert competitive knitter, which I have seen. I didn't realize they did have that, but of course they do. Those things, I mean, that makes you stand out. But you at least you say, I've got to at least understand what is competitive knitting. And that makes you more interesting. And so I think words of advice would be embrace who you are in your experiences and, and have that be part of the conversation because it will make you stand out. I love that. Thank you for the parting words. In middle school, I showed up to band and asked the band, she said, what do you want to play? And I said, the drums. And she handed me a bassoon. And so I'm, I'm familiar with that bassoon reference you just made, but most people are not. <laughs> but I love that. I am also a bassoonist. And so, uh, yeah. and so, yes, oh, I feel. Man, I can't yes. believe it took us like 40 minutes to get to the bassoon commonality, Ethan. <laughs> wow, that's incredible. Well, Breakline Arena listeners, thank you so much for joining. Ethan, it's been an incredible conversation, an absolute pleasure. I know your time is precious. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. And thank you, listeners. We'll catch you next time on the arena. Thank you very much for having me. We here at Team Breakline believe that any conversation can become a critical conversation. We hope each of you treads lightly and leads with love. Make sure it's the right time to take a risk. Choose wisely how to spend your energy. Understand your desires and make sure that you feel safe. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Breakline Arena series, How Do I Tell You? Don't forget to share if this conversation helped you or could help someone else. With love, until next time, listeners. <laughs>